Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So, Casey, today we're talking about a topic in which you are really interested in, and you have been talking with me a lot about tech. I knew you were gonna. That's I knew how you were gonna start the conversation that way because it does seem like even though I'm not in the field of tech, neither one of us is either a scientist, certainly not a computer scientist. We are humans in the 21st century, so yes. technology is important. But yeah, it has been on my mind a lot um, in the last six months or so, the impact of technology um, on our world. Yes, talking about you know, using tech, what is the field of technology like, who's behind technology. We've been having lots of conversations behind the scenes. But today is a little different, actually, because a lot of times we're talking about tech ethics, um, algorithmic op oppression, you know, what are the impacts of um, social media on young people, um, addiction, yes. mental health. That's the sort of the focus that we've been having on the on the user end of things. But today we're going to have a conversation that's more about, uh, you know, the economy of tech, um, about inequality and opportunity in Silicon Valley. Um, really what it looks like from a bigger picture lens and from, you know, working in tech versus being on the on the user side, which we all are really in the 21st century. And we have been super excited mm -hmm, for this guest to come on. We have. Yes, we have with us today Professor Windance Twine, um, who is a scholar, um, a black and Native American scholar at uh, the sociology department at UC Santa Barbara. Um, she's a full professor there. She's the author and editor of 11 books, including, we're the first stop on this book the tour. The first stop, which the real talk. We're not sure if she's having a book tour, but we're declaring that she is today. Um, Geek Girls, Inequality and Opportunity in Silicon Valley. Um, and she's, a, she's an ethnographer, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, she's a feminist race theorist, a visual artist. She's won many awards, um, including a Distinguished Career Award from the American Sociological Association, a number of grants, just an incredible and interesting um, career. She's done field work all over the place, and she's here with us today on Real Talk. So, Professor Twine, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really, really excited to be here. You are my first stop yes. on the tour. I will at some point, probably in the fall, come to New York, but I'm delighted to be here. I really appreciate having a chance to talk to you and to get your perspective mm. since you're on the other on the other coast. Yes. <laughs> so and you're I mean, you're on the other coast and and um, it's your perspective will be really important. And I'm, I'm really excited. We are just as excited as well. So your book, Greek Girls, coming out, we have an audio book, an e-book. And you have wrote 11 other books. So what inspired you to write this book in particular and really share this to the world? So all of my work has been on inequality, different forms of inequality. My first book was about racial inequality in Brazil. I've, I've worked in the UK. Um, I basically worked on both sides of the Atlantic. But I've always been interested in how different forms of inequality intersect. Right. So there's race, there's gender, there's class, there's caste. And so 
the way I got into this book was almost accidental. Hmm. So when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, I never lived in Berkeley. Um, I chose to live in San Francisco. I did not want to live in an academic ghetto. I wanted to kind of have a life separate from the academy. So at that time, um, living in the Mission District of San Francisco it was a cheap place to live. It wasn't like today. So I chose to live in the Mission District, which was a working class area. It was near the BART. And so I lived there for six years. But once I left and I got my first job, I kept returning. So the way this book developed was initially, I was, I was basically going back to visit friends in the mission, which has been taken over by the tech industry. Uh-huh. It used to be an affordable place. And it's kind of a good location because it's walking distance to the downtown. So I was in the mission district visiting friends and Google had just bought a building um, in that neighborhood and had opened an office there, not far from the 16th Street BART station. And I noticed immediately that the demographics was shifting in the neighborhood and that, you know, it used to be, I lived on $5 a day. I mean, I know I'm going to sound like somebody from the depression <laughs> era, like I had $5 in 10 cents, but literally I was very poor as a graduate student. And so I was, I'm always conscious about money. And so I noticed when I was back in that area that everything was more expensive. It, it was dominated by tech people. The, all of the public bus stops were being used by tech um, buses that bring. And so I thought, I'm just going to do a little project here on the relationship between the new, the new people who are moving in uh-huh. to the area. Many of them, by the way, were from Boston or New York. Like there's this big migration from the East Coast and their relationship with the people who were already here, who are working class and poor. So I started doing these interviews with a former grad student and I wrote a a piece called, I co-authored a piece called Compassionate Capitalism, but it was basically about how people in the tech industry were doing these charitable acts, mm-hmm. like they were doing things for the unhoused, the homeless, but they weren't hiring anybody from the community. Right. So I started to think, wow, the people who grew, grew up here, Black, Latinx, white, are not getting these jobs. And I'm very, because my work is intersectional, meaning I always think about class inequality mm-hmm. in relationship to other forms of inequality like race and gender. So it became really apparent to me that as you know, the tech industry, at least in California is the most powerful economic engine. It's generating all this money, but local people of color are not being hired. Mm. And so that was really apparent. So I thought, okay, Maybe I'll just do a few more interviews. And I was literally couch surfing. I had no research money for this, no grant money. And it was exploratory. I quickly fe- I, I quickly realized that the relationship between the people in this industry and the community was they were doing kind of like good, like helping them with certain things, but not creating an on an ramp, on ramp into the jobs in the industry. And it was also really clear that if you were a Latinx or Black dropout, you were not going to be hired. But if you were an Ivy League dropout mm. or dropped out from Stanford and white and had the right connections, you could get hired. 
So I started meeting people who, I had a friend whose husband was a white college dropout from New York, had ended up in a high paying job in tech. And so the inequality was just stark, Hmm. but it wasn't, I didn't really see anybody writing about that. And, And so when I started doing this project, it was right before the government, it was right before we started having the companies release data about their employee demographics. So when I started this, we didn't even know, we didn't even have the numbers of X percentage of your employees are white, X percentage. It wasn't required by the government. The government had been convinced by the tech industry that to release that data would, would basically hurt their economy, like it would hurt them. Right. It would be, you know, and so it was a trade secret. So that changed in 2014, around the time I started doing this. The San Jose Mercury basically um, used a a Freedom of Information Act Hmm. to get some of that data. And then we find out Blacks and Latinx combined were two to four percent. That was at that time. Now it's like three to six six percent. So I just thought. No one's writing about this. Mm. And I started looking at all the literature. I started doing my own research on what was written. And most of what was written focused, a lot of it focused on immigrants from India, uh, white women, but Mm -hmm. basically white women and Asian women. But there was like almost nothing about Blacks and Latinx and Native Americans. Like they just weren't even in the conversation. I also became really interested in this topic because I live in a state where there's a lot of talk about immigration mm-hmm. and, and the problems and the issues. All of that literature is important, but it only focuses, it focuses primarily on low-wage immigrants and Mexican-Americans who are obviously a significant part of the state. But I thought, what about people who are not low-wage immigrants? What about people who are earning six figures before even completing a graduate degree. What like I also thought it was sort of really weird how we had all the stuff about the undocumented mm-hmm. workers and Mexican Americans and very little about well we have immigrants who are actually doing really well who are earning a lot of money who are earning more than the average white person <laughs> in the state and and so I thought I wanted to bring into conversation the literature on the issues of gender inequality with immigration, but also putting Black women, Latinx, and transgender and LGBTQ people mm-hmm. into the same analysis, like bring those, that, those groups into conversation. Because the other issue is that the tech industry, at least in Silicon Valley, does have a lot of LGBTQ people, including um, the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook. Mm-hmm. And yet you don't really learn anything about their experiences either. So I was also interested in, do they, are they experiencing the same forms of discrimination as black people or brown people? So, and there was some surprise, I found some surprises. Mm -hmm. So basically all of my earlier work was on different forms of inequality. I wrote a book, A White Side of Black Britain, which is about white women and Irish women in England who form families with black men 
And, and so that book was about how do white w- women deal with racism mm-hmm. directed towards their family members or their children. So this is continuous. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's the first book where I focused on the U.S. Mm-hmm. But I'm I basically, my interest has always been how do we understand everyday racism? How do we understand different forms of inequality? And how does your race, gender, and sexuality shape that? And so I wanted to basically compare the experiences of women from different backgrounds. But I also interviewed men, right? Mm -hmm. So I I ended up, the book is based on 87 interviews, but it's also based on blogs, Mm -hmm. on memoirs, on legal court discrimination cases, on foundation reports. So I bring in a lot of different data, but then I try to include the voices of the of women and men so it doesn't read as just this really boring straight you know statistical thing because their experience ha- their experiences have to be understood in a larger context mm-hmm. so that so this is basically just a, another expression of my lifetime interest in how do we understand inequality and then what do we do about it i i have to say i mean i've read many books and this one really I, there was just it, it opened my eyes in so many ways it surprised me in a lot of ways and it also was kind of a wake up call in, in terms of like the the trade secret business i mean the tech industry relatively speaking has come up so fast um and a lot of people a lot of us are still doing sort of more traditional forms of research um and in terms of the everyday i mean this is such a big such a big area and i also think one thing that really struck me reading your book was um, Jamil's gonna <laughs> roll his eyes at me because I want to talk about methods. Um, it, it really struck me how you re- unflatten um, categories that we're so used to reading and hearing about categories of race, um, class, gender, sexuality, in such nuanced ways that talk about like, oh, maybe somebody, um, you know, grows up outside of the U.S., has cultural, social capital there. And maybe that translates. It depends, you know, on a lot of different factors, whether that translates. Um, And looking at trans women's experience, um, that's just not something that you see, that we see enough. And frankly, the same thing with, um, I feel like we're lucky if, if in terms of the enormous category of Latinx, Latinos, if if we even hear a conversation that differentiates um, between lighter and darker skinned Latinos, we're lucky to get that. Um, Very lucky, you know. Yeah. So, just the nuance in your in your analysis here uh, was refreshing um, and is so important, especially in talking about the tech industry. Let me just say one thing. I think my first research project was in Brazil, mm-hmm. so I really benefited from that mm-hmm. because I saw how skin color mattered. Yep. And, I, and when I returned to the U.S., I thought, wow, no one's really dealing with colorism. Mm. I should also add something that I haven't said, which is that Sophia Noble and I were in a writing group together. Huh. Uh, um, I, co- I co-organized a group in Yosemite years ago. And so I met Sophia before I was working on this project. Hmm. And so I wasn't really... I'd never, I had no idea that I would end up doing something like this, but it was really the fact that I had lived in San Francisco for so many years and I saw the transformation. Mm-hmm. 
I saw all the black people being kicked out and moved out when I was living there. And then they, and then the Latino neighborhoods were shrinking. So yeah, but the interest, the intersectionality, there is not a lot, there's not enough research on how skin color matters mm -hmm. in the Latinx community. Mm -hmm. And I see the racism, it's called horizontal racism. I see it every day here mm -hmm. where I live in California. And I feel like it's almost taboo. It's just not, at least on this coast, it's not adequately dealt with. So that that's the reason I was very clear about white Latinx mm. because you don't really hear that, but I, we have to don't. remember, but you have to remember the government. So the, the Hispanic category was added in 1970 under yes. Nixon. And that is not a racial category. Right, that's ethnicity. why you, yeah. it's, yeah. And I think the last time I looked more than 50% of Hispanics self-identify as white. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be really clear about what that means. Like this is not one experience, mm -mm. but so what I wanted to ask you too, what were, so the methods, I should say that I teach research methods. That's one of the courses I teach. Your students are lucky. Very lucky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just think that there is a lot of flattening and life is messy and our yeah. lives aren't that simple and we're not we we have multiple positionalities and it's fluid sometimes it depends on who you're with mm -hmm. and i've seen that in my own family depending on who i'm with and their color and their ethnic background the treatment you receive and it's just i wanted to do justice to people's social lived experience mm -hmm. But what surprised you? What were the, because there were a lot, I just want to be clear, there were a lot of surprises for me. Mm. I didn't go into this project with a, a specific agenda. I went into it trying to understand something. And I was surprised by a number of things that I found. Well, I know you have a list, Casey. <laughs> I know you have a long list. Well, I mean, so one thing is, this is again a little bit about methods, but I just really appreciated the length of um, the quotes that you were including from people's interviews and the the complexity of their stories, um, which we don't always get. And that was helpful for me in thinking about, you know, the I actually don't know very many people who work in tech, but the few that I do, I know, you know, they're friends of mine, so I know their particular stories and paths. And that helped me connect these individual experiences they've had to the bigger structures that you're laying out. So mm -hmm. I don't think I would have been able to do that as easily if I hadn't been hearing the very particulars of people's life stories and who their mothers are and their brothers and their fathers mm -hmm. are engineers or, or they had to move back home with their family in Florida because even though they're the smartest one in the class, they can't get a job as a black woman. Um, mm -hmm. So all of those um, the, the richness of people's lives and voices that you included. Um, I mean, I'm, my training is in, in rhetoric and communication and also American studies. So adjacent to sociology overlapping in a lot of ways. Um, it overlaps. I, I view this as the first book I've written that would fit into American studies. Mm. Mm. Yes, 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 right? yes. Because this is about the U.S., right? Yeah, for sure. Even though we have, you know, the immigrant experience in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll say that the many of the myths, and I want to get into that, the myths about the tech industry, um, I, I had fallen prey to those myths that you described, and I didn't even didn't even realize it. But I, you know, the tech companies are pretty dominant in perpetuating their own mythologies. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I think I think these myths are power, powerful, and um, especially the myth of meritocracy. Yes, and the myth of meritocracy, and so as you know, I, I outlined several myths. One is the myth of meritocracy, and the other is the pipeline myth. Mm-hmm. Those myths are very; they have been around for as long as the U.S. has been here. Yes. So there was a book written called. Um, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism by Weber. And we're still living with this, this myth that if you just work hard, Mm -hmm. you'll become wealthy. And, you know, Mm -hmm. almost all of the founding fathers, except for John Adams were plantation owners whose wealth was derived from the labor of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. We're still not dealing with that. Right. We have an, an aristocracy here, but we don't call them that. So I think, we have this powerful myth because just enough people who immigrate here make it, mm-hmm. right? But we have a lot of people who work multiple jobs. I grew up in a family, my mother worked two jobs and they are never going to become wealthy because mm-hmm. they don't earn enough, they don't have enough benefits. But in tech, I think what was so surprising for me and so shocking and troubling was how many people who had gotten their jobs through their social connections, yes. who, through who they slept with, who they were married to, whose daughter they were, and they still are perpetuating this. Yep. And they're participating in what's called dynastic hiring. Mm. You, know, you get hired because you know my sister or brother. or And what I think is so troubling about that is it is this myth is happening while people know it's not true. To some, some people know that's not true because they know that's not how they got their job. Yep. Doesn't mean they're not smart, but I think what surprised me, and you know this from the last chapter, is how many white women who did not have degrees in engineering or computer science, who had had degrees in arts and humanities, got jobs as software engineers if they had the twelve grand to put up and take. It's probably more now to go to a coding boot camp. I was fortunate that I started this study when that was starting to happen. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed women who were in the first classes for these coding book camps. And at that time, you couldn't even get loans for that. Now they have a different structure where, where you, if you, once you get a job, they, they take a percentage of your salary and you can pay it back. But I had no idea. And I don't know how many other people outside of the industry knew about this because mm-hmm. it was new. And sociologists weren't writing about it. And that to me really was a wake up call because it's like, okay, if I'm married to or friends with the right white or Asian guy who's gonna help me put up the 12K or I have savings and I'm not too black, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can kind of shift my entire career in a year Mm -hmm. or less. That is not about meritocracy. Not That's about. about access to privilege. Yes. Mm. So I think Americans are very, we've been socialized to not see certain forms of privilege. It's too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And we've convinced white Americans of this myth too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the mythologies, I always knew the myth of meritocracy was a mythology because I've grown up with so many amazing, talented people who were just poor. Yep. And couldn't didn't have the resources to be able to get a prestigious degree and just didn't have, you know, didn't have the same choices. But what I didn't really understand until this study 
was the pipeline myth. Mm. I had, I believe that. Yeah. And then you go and you're like, well, why didn't this Latina girl or black girl who I met, these are literally teens who've gone to the coding book, you know, who've taken courses, they still can't get jobs. Right. And they have experience. They have just as much experience as other people. Or what about all the people getting on the job training in the summers because they just happened to go to Stanford or Carnegie Mellon or MIT? They don't have innate abilities. They got trained Mm -hmm. in the summer. They got internships. Internships are basically like entry-level jobs. Yeah. And so I just, I realized that I hadn't understood. I also didn't, because I didn't go to an HBCU, I don't, I wasn't also aware of the discrimination against black people uh-huh. who went to historically black university. Like they can get a degree and still not get a job. They can get a right. degree in computer science. And I didn't know any of that until I did this research. Mm. Yeah, these I hadn't are thought all of, interesting points. I know. I hadn't thought of structurally about how these tech companies have a hierarchy of like these are the what we consider our top feeder schools in yes. the US and India. And the HBCUs yeah. are not at the top of that list. I'm not surprised no, I was it, not surprised it, by that. I've heard that from other people that have been to HBCUs to be like careful about like deciding where you want to go, mm-hmm. facing discrimination for but, that. But you we don't we're in the national media, they don't address that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't actually know this. And then I started doing the interviews. And I by the way, I interviewed a number of black men who dro- who dropped out of the tech industry during the period I was doing the research. And they had gotten their jobs through connections. Mm-hmm. But no, the HBCUs are marginalized. Um, and that was pretty obvious. But it's also the case that. There is a list. I saw there is a list. I've seen it. There is a list of like the preferred schools. And and they're all there's a list of the Indian technical institutes. And then there's a list here. Now there are people, graphic designers, mm. who didn't go maybe to one of those tech, those top schools who got in because this is a dynamic industry that's shifting. And so when they went to school for art, the they there was no training for how to design apps. Like different things have happened, right? And so I interviewed people who entered the industry between 1989 and um, 2019. So new jobs appear because as we know, there's new apps, there's new. So the other other mythology is that you can't, if you didn't take computer science or engineering, you're not eligible, but there's so many other jobs. Right. Right. And there's so many jobs for artists or just creative thinkers. But if you don't go to the right school or get embedded in the right network, you don't even hear about those jobs because they, they may or may not even be advertised. Mm. Um, this is a great point to share um, a little bit from a student of mine, a former student and now um, a mentee and a friend um, who's also a de facto part of the podcast team. Yes, she really is. Um, Nivon Shell. Um, she is a black and Latina or Hispanic woman, families from Venezuela. Um, and I, you know, talked to, we talked about this episode and I sent her the book. I said, read it in the summer. You know, we're about to have finals. Um, and she, she couldn't wait. She read it in the weekend and immediately, um, like just ate it up and loved it. Also was deeply troubled, um, and wanted to share a couple of things. So, um, she says, like the the myths specifically the skills gap and the meritocracy really blew her mind Um, but she says this i feel like i was sold the idea that there's a skills gap and only people like me can fill it 
People like me, meaning good at math, science, biracial, and different than most girls in tech because I present more feminine, I'm heterosexual. I bring this up because I was told being a pretty black girl who's also smart is my key in. I can use my looks to open more doors for me. Yes, I was told this. My question, is there really a skills gap? I, she said, I read that part, but I'm still shocked to hear this. And if not, why is it promoted so much? I'm always being shown and told um, that there's a, a skills gap. Right. So that's a myth, right? Mm-hmm. But um, so she believed that I think it, it. So I think, first of all, this is why it's important to have an intersectional analysis. Mm-hmm. Companies can pay immigrants less. So even though we're talking about really high paying jobs, you're going to hear a plane go by. I'm very sorry. No, you're fine. Yeah. Um, but it's to the advantage of tech companies to hire vulnerable workers, even though these guys are being paid a lot on visas because they have more control over them. Mm. They can prevent unionization. But, you know, you want to have grateful workers who are like, I'm so happy to be in the U.S. Mm. And workers like that are going to challenge anything, right? So part of the skills gap myth is there's, the, I don't talk about this part in the book, there's undermining competition from India. So there's the brain drain from India, Mexico, wherever. So you, you, you bring in the top people from other countries and you perpetuate this whole idea that you, they're the best, but also they're not gonna form an alliance with US blacks or Latinx people or poor people here, right? right? Cause they're being brought in and told these people just aren't qualified. So it's a way to maintain power over mm-hmm. workers it's also a way to control wages, even though this, these are high paying jobs, but mainly it's these economists and these mathematical models do not, they don't, economists and people who come up with these models for gaps, like they are, they're operating in an abstract world, right? And they're not really focused on discrimination against domestic minorities, gender. So part of the problem is when they, the estimates we have about we, we need X number of people and we don't have them, those are all coming from people who already believe in these mythologies and already do not have the concept of at promise as opposed to at risk. So I can meet someone and say, oh, he's black or Latinx or white and he's from this kind of, he's at risk. But how about at promise? I've learned this from my colleague, Victor Rios. So we stereotype youth, we say they're not capable, but it really helps companies have more control over their workers and prevent coalitions from from developing. And it's also a way to uh, get the top, what they're calling the top workers from other countries, which undermines the the industries and those companies, right? If you get, so Narendra Modi, the, the current prime minister of India, he actually came to Silicon Valley, um, I want to say five or six years ago, begging the South Asians there to return to India and bring the skills with them hmm. to come back, because that's how many are over here. But the skills gap myth is another way to justify why you're not hiring domestic minorities. Right. Right. So, oh, well, you know, they're not qualified. Well, how about the $14,000 you pay to process the visa 
for a worker in India, uh, somebody coming from India who probably could get a job there, mm -hmm. you could actually train that person, right? You could train that, you could train these people in Oakland or New York or wherever. And so it's all about control, power. But unfortunately, I think a lot of the people in the industry actually believe these myths too, right? But another issue that we know from all of the lawsuits is that if you hire an Asian student, an immigrant student, a student who's on a visa, you can pay them less. They don't have the same rights. You have more control over them. Wow. Right. And we know that is happening because we know this from the lawsuits that have been filed in San Francisco Superior Court. And we've seen systematic discrimination against non-Asians who are domestic minorities. It's, it's there. But that's also a way to keep people out who may exercise their rights, right? Who mm -hmm. may not be worried about their visa. Because the way the H-1B visa system works, you're attached to that employer for a certain number of years. But I think Silicon Valley and California in general are anti-union states. Mm. This is an anti-union state, right? And so the goal is to undermine mobilization. So a good way to do that is to bring people in and tell them the local population is not qualified. They don't have the skills. And we know this isn't true because a lot of the women I interviewed developed their skills here right. in the United States. And some of them had been sent from India while they were working for a company in India to the US to get trained, right? But if you don't collect that data, how would you nobody know? knows, right? Because it's not easy. The biggest, there are a couple of problems. One of the biggest problems is this is an unregulated industry. It's an industry that has a lot of power mm -hmm. and they, this industry, owns our, our politicians. I mean, yeah, it's a yeah. powerful industry and there are some exceptions, but this, this industry is more powerful than most state, most governments at this point because of the amount of jobs they control and money. So this is an unregulated industry. It's very similar to the railroads mm. of the 19th century, i.e. Leland Stanford, who owned the Pacific Railroad. It's a very similar thing where these are very powerful industries they're pretty much controlled by a very small number of people and they have too much money. I mean, every time you hear an NPR story about tech, they have to tell you that they're underwritten yes. by Meta. I mean, the names change yeah. like Meta, Apple. No, the parent of Apple is um, Alphabet. The parent of Google is Alphabet. Yeah. They also, they keep changing their name. Mm -hmm. They keep creating parent new parents, mm. parent companies, and then they have all the, but the industry's unregulated, right? That's part of the problem. It's not regulated. And it was so unregulated that they didn't even until recently have to release data about who they were employing. This is a perfect segue. So I feel like also different times in this podcast, I feel like I'm sometimes sitting in a master class. I know. I'm like, yes. Professor Twine. <laughs> yes, I feel like I'm sitting in a master class. I yes. just want to sit here and listen for hours <laughs> and mm -hmm. soak all of this in. But... We're talking about the tech industry being large and growing um, and some of the complex issues that is happening within the industry that's not widely talked about. 
I'm thinking about Radical Imagining mm -hmm. on this podcast. We love to try to think about if we could just dream a dream mm -hmm. as big as we want to, mm -hmm. what would something look like? So for you, looking at the tech industry, dreaming as big as you can dream, what would it look like? If it were, you mean more humane or cha changing the industry? Mm -hmm. I have been trying to dream that. And because I'm drug free, it's really hard. Ayahuasca <laughs> or something. Yeah. Like, it's really a big ass. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I, I mean, so part of the issue is this is a global, this is a transnational industry. Yeah. But I think one dream that I would have would be we need legislation, we need an equal rights amendment mm -hmm. that says everyone is entitled to not just a living wage, but a wage that enables them to take a six week, week vacation, like the Germans, like the Danish. We need to stop making, we need to have a system in which everyone has a chance to have a job in tech if they want, mm -hmm. but that it's not this, it's not like candy that gets handed out to certain people. So I would like the tech industry to not be perceived as like this elite, this elite industry that the best and the brightest. I would like it to be thought of as the new blue collar job. Mm -hmm. Like every, if you think about the auto industry and how so many men were able to support families, buy vacation homes on one in, on one way, right? I would like to see tech become, and I know this probably sounds counterintuitive, like a blue collar job mm -hmm. that anybody can get. And you would get six figures, you'd work hard, but you would get your vacations, you would get, your children would be educated and you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to prove I'm special. I'm special, I'm unique, I'm better. So I like to see the industry change to, cause there's so many jobs in tech that aren't just about coding. Right. Um, this book focuses on engine. I'm going to get back to the dream. This book focuses mainly on engineers because I wanted to focus on technically skilled women because I think, because I really wanted to understand what people meant by technically skilled. And I learned that some of that's a fiction, meaning that I had to learn Port Brazilian Portuguese to write my first book. So I'm not particularly skilled at languages. I did the work, I went over there, I learned it, but I think coding is like a language, for example and that everybody could probably learn it, but you shouldn't have to learn it to get a job in tech. So I guess what I would like to see happen is you don't have to go to MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, Harvard to get an internship for Google, Meta, whatever, the Oracle, that everyone's offered that instead of being offered a place in the military. Mm. I mean, because right. The military is the largest employer of youth in the US. Did you guys know that? So, you know, we, when we shifted from, okay, so in 73, in 73, we shifted from uh, the draft to an all volunteer army. When we became all volunteer, what that meant is an economic draft. You know, unless you were from a family that everybody went to West Point mm -hmm. and, but so you get the immigrants, you get poor people. So instead of the military being the place where we send every our men and women, that's the, by the way, the fastest growing segment of the military are women, black and Latina women. Everybody gets an internship 
if they want a tech company. And the tech companies have to provide that in exchange for all the government grants they're getting. Yeah. That my tax money's going to, because they're get they're getting millions of dollars in grants mm -hmm. because the tech industry is in bed with the military industrial complex. We have to remember that. Mm -hmm. So I think that I, that's my dream. But the problem is my dream would require a total shift in ideologies. Number one, the industry becomes regulated. Number two, they have to give back instead of just taking. Mm -hmm. They have to actually give back. And giving back is all kids, whatever, you first generation, second, it doesn't matter. You have an opportunity to do an internship. You can be an artist. You can be a musician. You, whatever it is you want to do, they have to provide more jobs that don't require a college degree. Because I think that's part of the problem. And the train's going to go by. <laughs> it's atmospheric. Yes, yes. I live near the train tracks. So sorry. <laughs> oh, no. There's the ocean and the train. So I, um, I lived in Germany for a while. I, I've lived in Germany. I've lived in the UK. And one of the issues in the US is we've told everyone you have to have a college degree to get a good job. That's just not true. And I know it's not true because I've met a lot of people in, <laughs> in the Valley that didn't. But we could actually say we that this is the tech industry. You have to provide X number of skills to X number of students each year and offer them a ramp into your company and shift some of that money that you're paying to process the 4%. These are Brahmins are 4% of the Indian population. So this isn't a, an argument against hiring immigrants, but some of the money you're spending on that, you could actually be investing in youth here, hmm. right? It, because the fact is money's being spent on lawyers to process visas for people who are from upper middle class or middle class, upper caste backgrounds. And nobody really talks about that. It's like, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that. But you found a way to process all of this. And we actually have people here in Oakland, in various parts of California who are poor, who have skills, who mm -hmm. have ideas, or who could develop skills. So I would like to see the government take a stronger role in regulating these companies and forcing them to do things. But I don't know that that'll happen anytime soon because the government is in bed with tech. Right. That's the problem. And it, because it, yeah. it, it's such a wealthy industry and, and that's where you see the East Coast and the West Coast, that there's this mini migration. Like these, this is one big family, mm -hmm. right? So if you remember the chapter uh, where I talked about um, the woman who worked in the Apple offices, she worked in New York, she worked in Atlanta, she worked in the Bay, and it was the same, it was the same forms of discrimination, mm -hmm. right? The same thing, right? And so the culture is not going to change unless there's some intervention. And the, there doesn't seem to be the interest because so much money's being made. Right. And it's also, also so easy to, um, you know, I just, small changes that Facebook or Twitter can make can swing elections yeah. that are close. Um, yeah, no, I mean, 
I mean, I look at Facebook, you saw the numbers, right? I didn't make those up. I was not stoned in a hot tub when I wrote this, <laughs> right? And so, so I'm reading this, right? They hired seven black people seven, in 2014. Seven. You saw that? Mm-hmm. And like, maybe they've hired a hundred this year, but that those were not made up figures, right? And you're thinking, this is really not okay. We really only have seven, seven black people like qualified for a job there. <laughs> Right, but if you look at all of their their marketing material, like all their glossy, shiny stuff, it's like, look at these multicultural tech companies. It's because those are global, because what they do, and here's how it works. You shift to global. Mm. You look at the global Mm. workforce. Yeah, there are a lot of brown people in India. So you use that, you use that. And I think I quote Sophia Mm -hmm. Noble and her co-author, you use that to shift attention away from what you're not doing here in the US. Right. So- I understand this is a global company and you can hire people from the global South who live in the global South, but you also should be hiring people who live here. And I think even if they just did that, hired a few more, but at the end of the day, we have a transnational technocracy. We have people who went to a small number of schools who Hire who prefer those schools, and there is a little bit of flexibility, but it's social networks really, really matter. Mm. Really, really matter, and that's not unique to the tech industry, right? I mean, so- sociologists talk about that, but I think the problem is if we don't look at HBCUs, if we don't look at uh, tribal colleges on Native, if we don't look at the fact. Those are people too. Those are human beings who deserve an opportunity and they're not even considered, Mm. right? And you can't just say, oh, they're not qualified, but, oh, you're a dropout from Harvard? Great, here's a job. (laughs) It's like, like, you know, it's just a problem. But it's a problem that as human beings, we are kind of hardwired to prefer those who look like those who are like us, but it needs to be identified as a problem, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of saying, oh, that we just can't find a single black person in North America qualified to work at this company. (laughs) Because that's, it reminds me. So I'm old enough to remember when Larry Summers was president of Harvard, okay, Harvard. And I remember during that period, they're like, oh, we just can't find any black people in North America qualified to teach at Harvard Law School. This is why black people <laughs> right. tired now. We just right, tired. Right. And it's like, and this is the mentor of Sheryl Sandberg, right? Yeah. And I remember, I'm old enough to remember that. I'm thinking, this is crazy. This is just like completely crazy. And I'm happy to see that Harvard's now owning up to their, you know, use of enslaved persons, but like <laughs> there's a lot. But I think. Nothing's going to change until we can have an electoral electoral system that holds these companies responsible. And part of the problem is they're so closely, they're married to the defense industry, Mm. right? And surveillance. And so part of the problem is we need the engineers to say enough, enough is enough. Because this is also an industry where a small number of people could shut it down, could stop it. Yeah. Right. So in an ideal world, I guess 
not Zuckerberg, but someone like him would get married to Angela Davis. Or <laughs> you know, like, there you go. Or they would get married to- A secret <laughs> mission, somebody- No, I mean, I'm joking. I mean, I know it, but you know, like there'd be some kind of like personal connection yes. with like, yes, yes. yes, there's a problem, honey. No sex tonight till you take care of this. Yes, until you hire some <laughs> black people, yes. <laughs> I'm thinking of what was Liza Strada, that play where the women in ancient Greece, they go on strike with the men until they like stop the war. But I, I honestly, there's so many issues here related to how power operates mm -hmm. and the relationship between the government, the electoral system and not regulating this industry. And this is what an unregulated industry looks like. And there's so much at stake. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, economically, um, what's at stake and what's in, uh, at stake in terms of um, inequality. And also there's the impacts of all these technologies and who's designing them um, and what you're talking about with surveillance. And um, but who is making these algorithms? Who is at the table with these big conversations that are impacting all of our lives in ways that we don't even know, frankly? No. And I mean, that's. If I were, so I'm actually working on a follow-up to this book. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I, I'm working with uh, Chelsea Roche and we, we're interviewing recruiters. Hmm. And because I don't know if you noticed in the book, recruiters are really important, but I didn't really interview recruiters. I wasn't really focused. So now I'm interviewing recruiters. And one of the things we're finding is recruiters have a lot of power, hmm. right? And you don't need a college education to become a recruiter. Like, I didn't know that. Hmm. So, but we're trying to interview recruiters from diverse backgrounds to, to get their understanding of the pipeline issue. And so far, it's like, they a lot of them are like, no, this is not about the pipeline. <laughs> this is not, but it's pretty clear to me that the way that my book is in dialogue with the work of Ruha Benjamin and yeah. Sophia Noble and others is that we don't have enough people from diverse backgrounds actually involved in decision-making related to AI, yes. the, the, the development of apps. We don't, and because we don't, we, we, we really have a problem there. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just about diversity. This isn't, this is bigger than equity, but the fact that Timnit Gebru was represents one percent. Yes, and she was a co-leader of Google Brain, and then she gets let you know kicked out. That's a problem because she was one of the only women, women black women in there, mm -hmm. and she's from you know the Ethiopian elite basically. I mean, you know, she's the daughter of engineers, and went to Stanford and did it was doing really important work. But if she can't have a seat at the table, what does that say for the Black and Latinx girls who aren't the daughters of engineers, right? Right, who didn't go to Stanford? What options do they have? Mm. So I I think it's I think her story is interesting, and that happened as I was concluding the I was literally the book was done, mm. and then oh, they fired her. Yeah, and I'm like, hold up, hold it up, yeah, hold re up, rewrite the conclusion. Got to rewrite the conclusion, yeah. but it it tells you that the, that the people fighter they understand how power operates, and they don't want people there who are not going to toe the party line. Mm. 
And we know that facial recognition technology is going to be misused mm. by police, by the government. Like we have a serious problem right now with surveillance, like the cost of surveillance. Yes. So we already know things like if you're darker skinned, this research, by the way, has already been done. Mm -hmm. So there's research done that shows your skin color affects the length of a sentence you get. Mm -hmm. prison sentence like there's a direct relationship between skin color and prison sentences right and so we know that so you know that how you look you know that that's going to be folded in to all of the new ai artificial intelligence and surveillance it's just going to reproduce the stuff that's already happening which is skin color discrimination yeah which is um kind of criminalizing children I think, I can't remember, please forgive me, I can't remember which state. It's a Southern state. They just decided to raise the age to eight in terms of who you can arrest. Oh so we've gosh. been, they've been arresting children in this country. You can, you can arrest children as young as six or seven. Oh my God. Did you know this? No, yeah. no I did not. Yeah. A six or yeah. seven and year so, old. Yeah, and so we already have a problem of criminalizing children for being children, yeah. right? And wow. I think we have to start, I think basically we need a government, we need a, a nonprofit to get together all the smart people in AI or tech and say, look, we need to do something. We need to like address these issues, but I don't know what's, what it's going to take for that to happen. I think it could happen. Timnit now, Timnit mm -hmm. has a, her own um, foundation now, or, but you know, we do have the algorithmic justice league, yep. but I think we need young people to just get outraged and take this on as a civil rights issue. And so part of the civil rights issue is that I should not have to be white male from the right zip code, go to Stanford or Harvard and drop out to get a job in tech, <laughs> right? Like my zip code should not matter. My racial ethnic background shouldn't matter and my nationalities shouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things is that, that I found was nationality does matter because people from certain countries are getting a better deal. Like Mexicans aren't getting the same deal as, as Indian nationals, right? So it is, Puerto Ricans aren't getting the same. Like, so there is an issue here. And I, but I think we can't address the problem until we do, we have the data. And the tech industry has done a really good job of hiding data. And I guess where I would end is we need to criminalize the use of non disclosure agreements. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of companies, you can't even, you have to sign an NDA to even interview. Huh. Did any of you watch the dropout? Yes. yes. Okay. Did you notice how many, like oh my you gosh. come in for a yeah. cup of coffee, here's your NDA, yes. go to the bathroom, here's your NDA, yeah. right? So basically you're signing away your free speech rights uh -huh. just to be in that space. That has to stop. And so the, if you ask me some of the things that need to change, yeah. the overuse and misuse of non-disclosure agreements is a problem. Yeah. I also thought in the dropout, what? what seems so interesting was just the terror of the whistleblowers. Yeah. Well, but that's because you know you're up against like 25 high paid lawyers 
including the guy who was part of the um, same-sex marriage being legalized, right? I think, I mean, if we're going to look at incremental changes, the first thing I would fight for is ending the NDAs. Mm. That's a problem. Yeah. Um, tying uh, tying uh, executive compensation to, I want to see metrics. I want to see that you increase the number of people from this kind of background in you know in important positions. Like, how hard is this? Right. You know, you can develop all these sophisticated surveillance and weapon systems, but you can't figure out to hire people how to hire people who don't look like you. Like it's just not that complicated, but there's no incentive. Right. Right. And so I think that's where you're like executive compensation. You don't get your bonuses mm. unless you've done this. But the but these boards keep voting against that. Mm. I mean, but I like this is not theoretical physics. <laughs> Right. This is right, not, not rocket science. I mean, none of us are yeah, rocket scientists. Not, yeah, as they would say in the 20th century, this is not rocket science. Yeah. But like, this is not complicated. In a capitalist system, the only thing you can do is tie things to pay. Yeah. But the problem is the shareholders have to vote for that. And the government has to enforce that. And they're not, that's not happening. Hmm. Well, I did really appreciate um, Ruha Benjamin's uh, blurb on the back of your book that says, in order for us to change a problem, we really have to understand it. Um, and the final note that, I don't know if this is a spoiler if we're talking about academic books, it's not a novel. Um, but It's not a novel, though. The, um, you know, your your wish that in 10 years that this this book will be obsolete, this will, you know, this is something that happened in the past. This is historical research. Um, a decade from now, and at the pace things are going, it's possible. Mm. I mean that That's that idea comes. Yeah, that idea comes from Martin Luther King Jr. By the way, and Gandhi, the idea that I, I sincerely hope I'm writing histories for the future. Mm. Mm. That this will be history. Right now, I'm not sure of that. <laughs> but that's my my dream is that people will read this and like, oh my god, I can't believe things were so awful. But unfortunately, if you look at what's happening in this country now, it it, it feels like we're on a loop. It does. And we're, and we're like, okay, we're back in 1880. Oh, okay, now we're in 1910. Okay, oh, now we're back in 1890. Oh, no. Like, it doesn't... Yeah. Like, I, I literally told Casey yes. last night, I'm tired of living through so many historical events. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially these events yes. where, okay, oh, now we got to do a new... So I, I, I teach a course on gender inequality, and I used to teach this book called Jane. Jane was an underground abortion network in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and so, so now we're like looking at bringing that back, mm -hmm. <laughs> like resurrecting. Okay, now we gotta help all the women in the South and the Midwest have reproductive freedom. Mm -hmm. And now states are, California's like now describing itself as a reproductive freedom state. So is New York, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if you've seen the map, but Illinois is surrounded by like 10 or 20 states that are all going to be places where you can't have reproductive freedom. Right. It's crazy. Um, but yes, I did I did end the, the book with that. That is my wish. I was really happy I could find one gender discrimination case that was one. Yeah. One. <laughs> I mean, but... 
I think the issue, I think my go, my job as a researcher is to try to provide data that is compelling, mm -hmm. that people can use to inspire themselves to go and do collect more data. Because this is just one book, but I, I do hope that it opens the eyes and the hearts and the and the job opportunities. Yes two people like I, I hope somebody who has a startup reads it and's like oh okay maybe I shouldn't just hire everybody I went to school with or everyone mm. I slept with or everyone I'd like to sleep with yeah. <laughs> like, or, maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't hire right. everybody I had sex with yeah. yeah I mean I know I'm I mean I know that's like but but seriously like or, or had sex with or want to pursue yeah. mm -hmm. but maybe I should hire somebody that's not in my network. Yeah, I'm hoping the book does that. Pardon me. I said, what a what a brilliant idea, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't hire somebody. I just want to get in the hot tub with. Maybe I should broaden my my, my horizons. <laughs> Uh, well, Professor Twain, that's sort of a hilarious note to end our episode on. But we had I know. such a great time talking with you. We can talk all day. Yes. Um, I know. We didn't even get to the concepts. We need another, another, uh, <laughs> we need a part two. <laughs> we didn't even do the glass walls or the oh, geek capital. Or the geek capital. We should, why don't we do that real quick? If you have the, the time. I'll have, yeah, I have the time. Let's talk about that. Um, so we're used to talk, let's start with maybe geek capital. Um, we're used to talking perhaps about social capital or cultural capital. Um, so what is geek capital? So Pierre Bourdieu is one of my boyfriends. <laughs> no, I love Pierre Bourdieu. You know, he was a 20th century theorist. Geek capital is actually a type of cultural and some and social capital because it, but it's intersectional. So geek capital refers to my access and my it, it refers to having relationships or connections or weak ties with people in the tech industry so my brother my partner someone i went to school with gets a job at WeWork. i have people in the book like this and through that i meet someone who has a startup and then i'm able to get hired without going through a rigorous interview process so the point about geek capital is it's not based on just your technical skills or your expertise. It's based on you getting a foot in the door through social connections. Um, and it, it's, I wanted to, I, I came up with that, that concept because I wanted people to understand that getting a job is not just about what you know and whether you have a degree, right? In Silicon Valley, it's also about whether people can project onto you their vision of who would be who's qualified to be in the industry, right? And that's not based on merit. So I'm the sister of someone whose friend, best friend in college has a startup. We start hanging out. I like the same beer as him. Mm -hmm. I'm a gamer. I do, I play the same games. That's geek capital. Mm -hmm. So it's about shared interest, shared networks, things that are unrelated to merit that enable you to be qualified, to, to be included. And one of the things that comes up, one of the recur recurring themes, when I spoke to people who were not technically skilled, these are people who were in hiring positions to hire. 
So my first set of interviews was just with anybody in tech. And a lot of those people were not technically skilled, but they did hiring mm. or they were managers and they talked about cultural fitness. Right. 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 Cultural fitness refers to, do you like the same types of music? Do you engage in the same leisure activities? Are you a gamer? Do you, cause there are a lot of offsite bonding activities. Mm. What if I'm not into alcohol? You know, like I'm not, I'm not a big drinker. My father's native American. That side of the family all had alcoholism problems because they can't process it. So what if I don't feel comfortable having a beer in my bathing suit with you in a hot tub on an offsite event? No job for you. <laughs> yeah, what are you? Yeah. Or, or you're going to be fired. Oh, sure. <laughs> or you got the job. And you're like, you know, I don't really want to spend my week and weekends around you drinking and throwing up. And now you're not a team player. Right. Yeah, now you're not a team player. And you saw that also in the book, yeah. Black women talking about that. Or what if I don't want to wear the tech uniform? What if I want to have makeup? You know, whatever it is. Mm. Like, what if I don't want to change my whole appearance to fit in? And so geek capital is not having to even think about that. Mm. Right? Geek capital is a form of privilege that's based on social characteristics that are non-meritocratic. Does that make does that make sense? That makes a lot and of I, sense. Mm -hmm. And I had to come up with a term because I thought I need to come up with a term that people will understand. It's a form of capital that is more complicated yes. than just social capital right. or cultural capital because it's a form of capital that is recognized in the tech ecosystem, right? So, and that's why I have the example of Giselle. Mm. Uh, in the book, whose brother was the vice president of a company you would know. And the, his sister's like, I'm just unhappy in my job. And he's like, oh, really? Hey, well, you know, I'll introduce you to blah, 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 who runs the company. And then they create a job for her. And she's beautiful. I didn't go into the fact that she was also what we call conventionally beautiful. I didn't want to confuse it with erotic capital, mm. but... She could. She told us she couldn't answer a single question during the interview and got the job. Hmm. So that's geek capital. Yeah, and I, as opposed to Maya, who has to go. I identify. You probably could tell. I identify with Maya. Like you got to overperform. Yeah. You have to go, go through fifteen interviews. You have to like be the super black, or you know, mm. like it's like that is the reality. And, and Maya didn't have geek capital. Now she she was able to create a little bit of it by having the Filipina friend who she helped get the job. But Maya's story was so important because she really showed you what it's like not to have it. Right. Right. And that that, by the way, that chapter was initially further later in the book. Mm -hmm. And the reviewers like reviewers were like, you should move that up mm -hmm. because that's so powerful. And that'll help people understand how different. Maya's experience is from the immigrant women. Hmm. And it also was so interesting to me to hear how mostly from, from your analysis, but who did and didn't recognize their own access to, to geek capital um, or who did, you know, who just saw, who didn't see what was happening to other people around them and who did. But, and that's, I think we're all in that situation because yeah. that's where you see the social segregation and the occupational segregation. There were women 
in this book who worked on teams where they didn't even have to speak English. They could speak whatever their dialect was from Tamil Nadu in India. Like, so that tells you something, right? We're not talking about Spanish speakers here, right? And so that tells you that they didn't even have, they didn't have to do these big, like cultural accommodations, right? Their holidays were celebrated. And, and so you see how they're totally segregated from black or Latinx workers, hmm. right? Not that there were that many of them. They tended to be concentrated in non-technical fields. But to me, that was like, wow, there are these parallel universes hmm. that are completely socially, religiously, and ethnically segregated. Hmm. Well, I want to ask, um, so let's let's end the episode talking about this concept of the glass wall. So we're used to thinking about the glass ceiling Sailing, when yeah. it comes to, um, I actually don't know the history of that. I'm sure that you do um, in terms of women in the workplace. <laughs> yeah. um, but you, you know what the glass ceiling is, right? For sure. Well, well let, me, let me share this from Narvon Shell. Um, this, is, this is her question. Uh, I feel like sometimes the odds are stacked against me. And if she, you know, she read your book, so saw, yes, they in fact are. Um, mm -hmm. I have a good sense of self-confidence, very good, um, self-esteem and ambition, but how can I have the confidence to tru truly put myself out there if I can't even get through the glass wall? And so what, it, you know, that concept was like, was really helpful to her. Of course, you want to know there's a glass wall there so you don't run into it. So it's better to know that that's there instead of just thinking you have your own personal failings. But what is, what is the glass wall? So the glass wall, like the glass ceiling, is an invisible barrier. So the glass wall is something you don't see till you hit it. Mm. And part of it is because we do, we are, most of us are taught to believe if I just work hard and I have the credentials. The glass wall is what Maya hit up against. Mm. So you have the technical skills, you have the ability, but you don't have the social capital or the geek capital to be interpreted as as ha belonging. So you either not culturally fit. So the glass wall refers to recruitment policies that privilege people who know people who are already in the company. Mm. So for example, I have the experience, I have the skills, but everybody in this company is from South Asia, East Asia or whatever. And so I don't have those connections. And so because a lot of these companies, let me back up, recruitment can be expensive. It's cheaper to recruit through social networks, right? So instead of me posting an ad and going through all that, it's just like, hey, Jamal, who, who do you know? Yeah. Can you see them mm -hmm. over? And so the, it's cheap. So the, this is called social referrals. So social referrals are you refer somebody you know. They get hired, and then you get paid a bonus mm. for referring someone that got hired. That produces a glass wall because that means it's that means there's another entry way or way to enter the industry that's different from people who have to go through all the interviews. But you don't see that wall mm -hmm. if you don't possess the geek capital. Like you don't necessarily see that. The, so there's recruitment policies. There's also the issue that Maya talks about, which is if you're a contract worker, so for example, I get pregnant, I have a child, 
but I'm a full-time worker. So Google, Facebook, they will pay for a contract worker to come in and replace me while I'm on leave, right? Because they have good, so that person who replaces me does not have access to the same job boards or information that full-time employees have. So they won't, they won't be told there's an opening. So that, that's oh, a policy, right? So that's what, that's what Maya went through. So yeah. Maya basically had to go around and, you know, be up sick with, you know, it's like she had to constantly work to get people who had access to share that knowledge with her. They didn't even know they were violating the policies. So the policies in which you segregate full-time workers from contract workers in terms of their access to knowledge about openings, that's a, gla- that's a glass wall, hmm. right? Because it's invisible to you unless someone tells you. So Maya found out that she wasn't getting access. So glass walls refer to all of these policies and practices that produce invisible barriers to people who aren't already employed in the company or who aren't friends with or know people already employed in the company. Hmm. Right. So the point is you don't see it initially. And that's the same thing with the glass ceiling. Like you don't see it until you hit it. Because you're thinking, oh, I can, I can, I can, I can, but it's the same thing of, I'm like, oh, I have a degree in computer engineering, or I taught myself to code. I'm a job dropout from Harvard or Howard. I want to say Howard, because that's historically black, but I know how to code. I have the experience. You go to Silicon Valley and it's like, well, yeah, but you're a dropout. Because and you're not read as a Zuckerberg because you don't have the social connections. You didn't go to the you didn't drop out from the right school. (laughs) You know, and you're not being socially referred. Right. Right. So and the social referral is a form of geek capital, but you don't know that if you're not from the valley. And you also there was an article written, it was published in Bloomberg Newsweek in 2016 called Why Doesn't Silicon Valley Hire Black Coders? And it's a really great article to read. I would like you to link to that mm-hmm. because it, um, I'm, I'm putting it in the chat because, and it's in the book uh, references, um, because it shows that all of these brilliant black men and women who were at Howard in computer science, they would go to Google and couldn't get a job. Like they were not hired, even if they'd done the internship. And part of that is they don't have the geek capital. They don't have a white person or an Asian or somebody in the industry to authorize them. Mm-hmm. Right. To say, and my and if you recall the story of Maya, eventually the reason she eventually got a job after 15 interviews is a white woman she had worked with on a project vouched for her. Mm. So at the end of the day, all of her experience, all that work, at the end of the day, it comes down to someone saying, yeah, she's cool. Yeah. Oh my God. She's one of us. She's one of us. Yeah. 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 At the end of the day. It's like all of these barriers in my mind, I'm starting to see like a skyscraper. Forming in this conversation. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, this has been such a great conversation, Professor Twain. We love your book. We love you. Yes. Where can folks find your book? 
So the book is available on on Amazon, but I would prefer if people bought it from New York University Press if they can. And if you use the code, I'm going to put this in the chat. We love a code. Uh, oh, we got a code. We got, wait, yeah. If you use this code, hold on. 30% off? Yeah. And and you can go to my website and from there it'll take you to, but I prefer if people could buy it from NYU Press, but it's available now on Amazon. The ebook and the audio book will also be available on Amazon or Kindle on different apps. I don't know exactly when the audio book is going to be released, but probably within the next two weeks. That'll be when this so, episode but, comes out. That's great. Yeah. So New York University Press, people can buy the book and, and they'll ship it for free and it's available now. Perfect. And We're so, linking that with the code and everything. So our listeners can get a book and... Yeah, so go to my website, link link people to that, and they can get they get thirty percent off and free shipping. Ooh, I want to make it clear: I am not trying to make money off of this book. That's why I want everyone to have the code. I just want the information to get out there. I want the next generation to have more access to these jobs, and I want people to understand that we need to hold the tech industry accountable for the ways in which not all companies, but which many of them are denying opportunities to people here. And it's just not, it's, it's not fair, it's unjust, and taxpayers are paying a lot of money for these companies and they're getting these government contracts. And it's just, it's a form of inequality that should be unacceptable to us. And apparently it's not unacceptable to the government because they're allowing this to keep to keep happening. Absolutely. So, it is a civil rights issue of our time. It's a civil rights issue. And I and also I just want people to not feel bad, to not feel like, oh, I don't have a job in tech. It means I'm not smart enough. No, that's not what it means. Yes. It means you're not networked. Mm. Mm. Well, I think we're planting seeds on this podcast. I think we are. So hopefully want, more conversations will pop up around the country. I really want to thank you. It's been so great talking to you. And should I just send you stuff that I want you to link it to? If, sure. If, of course. Of course. Okay. You've been awesome. I wish I could like talk to you more. And <laughs> if, uh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to read the book. Oh, I really absolutely. appreciate it. And thank you for sharing it with your students. Mm. So, and, and I'm really, I'm thrilled that, that there will be an audio book in the next couple of weeks. That's yes. delightful. Thank you so much. It's been a Thank pleasure. Thank you. It's been great.